Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word, Lord, for the Bible. Lord, in, in which we read of you, in which we can learn of you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, in whom we see the face of God. And we pray, Lord, that, that as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, that we will see Christ, the wisdom of God, and the power of God. And Lord, that, that in the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would would drive these truths into our hearts, Lord, that would would change us and to make us more like him. And Lord, we ask this desperate for you to work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, virtually every week, it's my prayer that the Lord would do a work in my heart through the text that I am studying. And virtually every week, God answers that prayer. The first person that needs to be impacted by my sermon is me. Whether it's encouragement, whether it's conviction, whether it's, it's a deeper understanding of, of, a, of, a, of a powerful truth, I need to be the first one that's impacted. And as I said, virtually every week, God answers that prayer. But this week, I didn't have to wait very long. This week, as I opened up the text, and as I read the first verse of this text, I was impacted, I was convicted, I was challenged by what God's Word said to me through the Holy Spirit. As soon as I started reading this passage again in the preparation for this message, I was immediately convicted of the number of times that I have relied on myself in the preparation and the proclamation of God's Word. Too often I have relied on my intellect in the preparation of my message. Brothers and sisters, to rely on Anything other than the power of God is an affront to God as much as reliance on the techniques used by Charles Finney that we discussed last week. It is an affront to God. Many of you are familiar with C.H. Spurgeon, who's called the, the Prince of Preachers. Virtually everything that, that Spurgeon said was quotable. He was, was a, a he, he packed in the, in the, in the middle of the, the 19th century, he packed the Metropolitan Tabernacle. There were thousands of people that came to hear him preach. But what's not known about Spurgeon was that quite often on Saturday evening, in preparation for his message, he would literally vomit because he was so concerned that he did not know what to preach out of that text and that, that, you could, that the floor of his study was littered with crumpled up pieces of paper. This is C.H. Spurgeon. 
and that, that almost every time that he walked up the steps into that, into that pulpit, he would repeatedly say to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because Spurgeon knew, Spurgeon knew that he was desperate for God to work. You might be familiar with Al Mohler. Al Mohler is the, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Al Mohler is, is got to be one of the, the, the smartest men that I've ever met. And, and I, I don't say that as though I knew him personally. I, I basically shook his hand and said about two words to him because he was the president of my seminary. Now, what, what's not known, Southern Seminary is now known as one of the, the premier seminaries in North America, but it wasn't always that way. Southern Seminary, by the, by the, by the mid-80s, had become so liberal that there were actually lesbian commitment ceremonies taking place in the library basement. And when Al Mohler was brought in there at the age of 32... Many in the seminary were so upset that they actually hung him in effigy in the tree outside of the chapel. And that after he preached his first message, that the faculty marched en masse to his office in rebellion against him. But several years later, only one or two of those faculty have remained, and, and Al Mohler is still there to this day. And this school has, has turned back to its roots. No man can do this, especially at the age of 32. He, he, Al Mohler is so smart, he has, 30, he has 30, 000, over 30,000 books in his library. And he knows what's in them all. There's a, Mark Dever tells a story of, of going into his library, and it's almost like a party trick where they randomly pull the book off the shelf and ask him what, was, what it was about. And he could tell them, he could give them a summary of that book. This isn't God's, this, is, this isn't man's strength doing this. This is God's strength. Men like Spurgeon and Moeller are gifts to the church. And I've even been convicted that I was, was glorying in them and their intellect. I'm not even in the same hemisphere as Spurgeon or Moeller. I still remember, like it was yesterday, the, fir the first time that I preached... And in the preparation process, I really wasn't that, that nervous. But, but when, when I was about to get up and preach, it was, it was uh, my church in Australia, and it was, uh, was, was bigger than, than this one. But I, I had real fear of man, and, and I'm not saying I'm totally free of that, but, but I, was, I was terrified until the, the song that we sang before I got up to preach and the song was exactly was about exactly what I was going to preach about. I was talking about growth through suffering. And I realized it is not my message. It is God's message. And then God gave me peace to be able to do what I needed to do. 
In my last my last semester of seminary, I remember meeting with, with the discipleship counseling pastor and saying, you know, I can preach if I have to, but I really don't feel that I'm able to do it, that I, I don't feel that's my, that's my calling or my gifting. The last seminary before I graduated, or the last semester, rather, before I graduated, I wanted to do discipleship counseling. But then, as you know, the circumstances, the, the senior pastor from, from this church resigned the weekend I graduated, and they approached me about, about a call. It is a miracle that I'm able to stand here and to preach. I have nothing to offer that God has not given. 22 years ago, I was sitting in a psychiatric hospital, barely able to string together three words to make a sentence. And that's where God saved me. The fact that I get up here on a Sunday and preach is a miracle. It's even more of a miracle than the fact that any of you would actually sit there and listen to me. What did you come here to listen to? You haven't come here to listen to John Tucker. You have come here to listen to God's word. If, if you were going to hear my wisdom, it wouldn't take very long. We would have been out of here two seconds after we got here. You come here to listen to the word of God proclaimed. And whenever that is done, that is done by God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Whenever I preach the word correctly, it is entirely by God's grace. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't work in power in your hearts, then I might as well be up here reading Dr. Seuss. We are desperate for God to work with power in the proclamation of his word. Desperate for me to be able to speak it. Desperate for God to do the work in our hearts to change us by the proclamation. But if you come away from listening to me preach impressed by, by my exposition of the text or my insights or my illustrations, I have failed. I have failed. If I stand up here and do anything to draw attention to myself, I am robbing God of his glory. My job is to explain the text so as to point you to Christ. And we are desperate for God to work with power in order for any of that to take place. What could I possibly do to add to the power of God? I can only detract from the power of God, so to speak, by my reliance on, on my intellect. It is not intellect but power. Not eloquence, but power. Not techniques, but power. Not jokes, but power. And this concept of wisdom versus folly and power versus weakness is prominent in this passage. It's all about God's wisdom and power versus man's foolishness and weakness. Paul uses the word wise or wisdom 16 times in this passage, 25 times by the end of chapter 3. This passage points to the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so doing it reveals the foolishness of man. 
This morning, first, we're going to see how the wisdom of God reveals the folly of man in verses 18 to 25. Then we'll see how God chooses the foolish to shame the wise in verses 26 to 31. And then next week, we'll see how the folly of preaching reveals God's power in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. In the eyes of the world, what we do here on Sunday mornings is foolishness. It's foolishness. But the wisdom of God reveals the foolishness of man. Here in verses 18 to 25, most people would rather be sleeping in or or going out to brunch or watching television or doing anything rather than listening to the word of God proclaimed. They say, what a waste of time. What foolishness. But to them, it's not exactly the preaching itself that's foolishness. It's what we preach. It's what we preach. Paul says in verse 17, the final verse that we looked at last week, for, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Preaching was Paul's primary purpose as an apostle. He wasn't downplaying the importance of baptism, but he was putting it into its proper place, its proper perspective. And what was Paul preaching? He was preaching the gospel. To the world, there is nothing more foolish. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, the, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When you open your mouth and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you tell people that they are sinners, that they are guilty before a holy God, and that they deserve eternal hellfire, a lot of them will roll their eyes at you. Already thinking about the excuse that they will offer as to why they're not really guilty. When you tell them that the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among men, they will yawn. When you tell them that his name is Jesus Christ and that he never sinned, they'll just shake their heads at you. When you tell them that he gave up his life on the cross and that the Father poured out his wrath on the Son in the place of his people, they will tell you that your concept of justice is totally warped. When you tell them that Jesus rose again on the third day, they will think that you are out of your mind. They are perishing so they don't understand. They cannot understand. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3. C.S. Lewis tells of of trying to share the gospel with a man who is dying in a hospital bed and that this man is more interested in in a blue bottle fly that's buzzing around the window than he is about the words of life. I've seen that. Repeatedly, I've gone to the hospital and tried to talk to people about the gospel and they're completely uninterested. Some of these people were, were days from leaving this life to stand before their God. And they're rejecting the words of life. 
Just like it was yesterday, I remember visiting a man in a hospice house. And I walked up to the room and knocked on the open door. The, the lights were, were on but, but dimmed and his, his family were, were gathered around. But what impacted me most was the smell. The smell of death hung heavy in the room. Now, I can't describe that smell to you, but if you've smelled it, you know what it smell, you know what death smells like. He asked me kind of sharply, who, who are you? And I told him that I was a pastor and that a relative of his had actually called me to see if I could, could go and visit him. It was very obvious that I was not welcome. So I asked him if I could pray. Now, usually people will at least say, yes, it's okay, you can pray for me. But he just sharply told me no. It was so sad to see somebody so hostile to God, especially somebody that was so close to death. And this will be your experience most of the time when you proclaim the gospel. People think it is foolish, but there will be some. And it's usually only a small number who, when they hear these things, to them it's like a breath of fresh air to a drowning man. Usually these, these are people who, in whom God has already been at work in the power of the Spirit. It, their hearts have been tilled by the Holy Spirit and they're already considering the things of eternity. They're already aware of their guilt and their need for forgiveness. So that when you come along and sow the seed of the gospel, the Spirit immediately draws them and they are saved. That's how it happens sometimes. But there are also times when the pro process happens quite quickly, when it happens almost immediately, when, when someone for the first time they hear the gospel, the very first time they hear it, the power of God works in their hearts and grants them repentance unto faith in Christ Jesus. This was something that the Apostle Paul had experienced time and again. In fact, this was his exact experience in Athens at Mars Hill just prior to his first visit to Corinth. Turn, please, in your Bible to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, verse 19. Here we see that the, the Greeks took hold of Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, well, may we know what this new teaching is that you, that you are presenting. They were curious to hear this, this new teaching. Luke's, Luke tells us that the, the people there spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Maybe you're a little bit like that. You want to hear the latest and the greatest. Well, the pantheon of these Greeks was comprehensive. They had, had gods for everything. In fact, not wanting to miss anything, they even had an altar to the unknown God. And Paul tells them that they didn't know God, but he was proclaiming him to them. Paul told them that God could not be worshipped in, 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 by any image or art form, but that God was calling them, calling them to repentance. He was telling them that God will judge the world in righteousness by Christ. And that God had raised him from the dead as proof. Now look at the response. 
Down to verses 32 and 33. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Some mocked and some believed. That's going to be the case whenever the gospel is proclaimed. And then here in 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14. It's the first of, of many of his Old Testament quotes in 1 Corinthians. And he's using the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the context of, of the passage of, of Isaiah 29 is that the king Hezekiah's political advisors were, were telling him to make an alliance with Egypt so that they could throw off the yoke of the Assyrians. And so they make the alliance, and that alliance actually, that actually is the catalyst that causes the Assyrians to invade. And Jerusalem is captured. But the Lord had a different plan. The Lord would allow Jerusalem to be besieged before rescuing the city. From the minds of, of believing Jews and even unbelieving Jews, the fact that God would allow his holy city to be captured by Gentile, by Gentile, by pagans was, was unbelievable to them. But God had a different plan. God would allow Jerusalem to be besieged before, in turn, rescuing it. And as Anthony Thistleton explains, in the wisdom of his own purposes, God chose to reverse what was perceived as wise in an event which appeared to consist in weakness and failure, but would lead in the longer term to new beginnings and to a chastened, transformed people. Does that sound familiar? That is the message of the cross, that God takes what is seen as weakness to bring about victory and redemption. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. The wisdom of the world is completely upside down. Completely and utterly upside down. How do you become great in the kingdom of God? By humbling yourself as a servant. How do you become rich? By giving away all that you have. How do you become wise? By realizing that you are a fool. God is actually destroying. He is actively destroying the wisdom of the wise. He is thwarting the discernment of the discerning. He's actively working against them. He said, Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made their wisdom foolish? Now, if that doesn't describe what is happening in our culture, I don't know what does. 
Never in history has there been more of a, of a, a militant atheism. Atheists like, like Carl Sagan and Stephen Hawking or Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins are exalted for their supposed intellect, but the Bible calls them fools. The Bible calls them fools. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So those who reject him are complete and utter fools. The youngest child here who has faith in Jesus Christ is light years. Light years infinitely ahead of those men. In God's infinite wisdom, he devised the plan of redemption so that the world could not find him through the world's means. Philosophers and scientists can't find him even though his fingerprints are all over his creation. God has shown them his eternal power and his divine nature in everything from ants to atomic energy. And they have no excuse, Paul tells us in Romans 1, 19 and 20. Such people are not truly atheists, but anti-theists. They believe in God, but they're rejecting him because they hate him, because their works are evil. But even revelation in creation cannot bring someone to saving faith in God. And it was not intended to do so. It requires the folly of preaching. But again, it's, it's not just the, the folly of preaching, but what is preached. It is the gospel that these people find foolish. Salvation requires the proclamation of the gospel. And God brings the power. In verse 22, we read that Jews demand signs. Matthew 12, when, when Jesus condemned the scribes and the Pharisees, calling them a, a brood of vipers, some of them responded by saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Jesus told them that an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The words of Jesus were not enough for them. They wanted proof. So he says that no sign would be given them but the sign of the prophet Jonah who was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So he said that the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus would die and be resurrected, but even that couldn't convince them. That wasn't enough of a sign for them. No sign could convince. It takes the power of God. Paul says that the Greeks seek wisdom. This is exactly the sort of thing that Paul saw in Athens at Mars Hill, but, but no wisdom would be given them but the foolishness of the cross. Christ crucified was a stumbling block to Jews. The word is, is scandalon. It was a scandal to them. They, the, the Jews saw the Messiah as a conquering king, and he is but they didn't understand what he came to conquer. They understood from, from Scripture that a man hanged on a tree is, is cursed by God. But they didn't understand that Jesus was cursed by God. 
And Christ crucified as folly to the Gentiles. The idea that God could be, could be killed by men and that the Father would, would pour out his wrath on his Son is utter foolishness to them. But, but, Paul says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God to save even Jews and Gentiles. To save those Jews and Gentiles who are called. Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that, that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, Paul's literally saying here that, that it's the foolish thing and the weak thing of God, that the cross is, is, is the wisdom of the cross is, is wiser than, than any man. And the strength of the cross is, is more powerful than any man. The cross is the greatest sign that has ever been displayed. The cross is the most profound wisdom that has ever been revealed. As Gordon Fee ex explains, in the cross, God outsmarted his human creatures and thereby nullified their wisdom. In the same cross, God also overpowered his enemies with lavish grace and forgiveness and thereby divested them of their strength. The wisdom of God reveals the folly of man. Now we'll see how, how God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise in verses 26 to 31. Paul now, now turns his attention directly to the Corinthians. In light of, of what the folly of the, of the cross means, he is telling them to consider their calling. Consider their calling. The, the Corinthians consider themselves wise. They were from Corinth, cosmopolitan and wealthy. It was an, an economic and cultural hub. And in a way that is typical of their, of their Greek culture, as we saw at Mars Hill, they admired wisdom. And many of them were, were attracted to the shiny, polished preaching of men like Apollos, over Paul's simple proclamation of the gospel without all the bells and whistles. And later on, Paul is going to call them fleshly. He's going to call them infinite infants. And that their jealousy and their strife proved it. Again from Gordon Fee, the irony of their present situation is that they are judging Paul and his gospel from this point of view which were they to apply to themselves would only serve to show how insignificant they really are. So Paul will apply it for them to show how different God's perspective is from theirs. The Corinthians had forgotten where they really came from. They weren't wise according to the flesh. They weren't wise in the eyes of the world. They weren't powerful. Not many of them were from nobility. They weren't the movers and the shakers of Corinth. 
God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are. From a fleshly perspective, if I was choosing a gospel dream team, I wouldn't choose many of you. But please don't be offended because I wouldn't choose myself either. Take a look around the room. We, we, we don't have any political power. We're not going to be on lifestyles of the rich and famous. We're not going to win Canada's smartest person. From a fleshly perspective, if I would choose anyone, I would choose men like, like Barack Obama and Vladimir Putin. Imagine how peaceful the world would be if these men were born-again Christians. In the, in the flesh, I would choose Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Imagine if Hollywood started making movies that actually glorified Jesus in, instead of the, the filth that is the usual fare. In the flesh, I would choose Oprah Winfrey and Ellen DeGeneres. Imagine if daytime TV were filled with Christian content instead of the New Age garbage that's on now. In the flesh, I would choose Stephen Hawking and Richard Dawkins. Imagine if those expansive minds were, were used to study Scripture. But God doesn't work that way. God chooses to work through simple people, simple people like you and me. Think about the disciples. They, they weren't the, the intelligentsias of, of Galilee. These men were, were uneducated fishermen. And God chose to use them to turn the world upside down, or, or rather to turn the world right side up. He tells them to consider their calling. Look back at the way that Paul addressed his letter to the, to the Corinthians, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. These sinful Corinthians were called to be saints together. Now sometimes people get, get cleaned up by the gospel and they, they forget where they came from. They gain a measure of, of respectability and they become proud. The remedy to that is to consider your calling. You have nothing to be proud about. God did not choose you or me because of our wisdom. He didn't choose us because of our goodness. He didn't choose us because he knew that we had potential. God chose us because we are foolish, weak, and we are lowly people in the world. He did so in order to undermine and to destroy what is esteemed in the world so that God would be glorified, so that no flesh could boast in his sight. Saints, consider your calling. Consider your calling. The concept of call highlights the initiative and the power of God. Look at verse 30. Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. Literally, from him, you're in Christ Jesus. 
You are in Christ Jesus because of God's providential decree. God chose you. God chose you. Jesus taught this in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's true of the apostles and it's true of us. Think about the, the golden chain of salvation from Romans 8, 28 and 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. It's all part of the process of salvation. All of those whom God called, he also justified. To be called of God means ultimately to be justified by God. In Romans 9.11, Paul uses Jacob and Esau as an illustration. He says, Though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order, now listen, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Because of him who calls. In Ephesians 1.4, he chose us before the foundation of the world. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Because of God, we are in Christ. Because of God, we are in Christ. And we who are in Christ have received the greatest gifts. Christ became to us the wisdom of God, the righteousness and the redemption and the, and the sanctification of God. And, and each of these could be could be the topic of, of countless sermons. Christ became our wisdom. Became our wisdom. The gospel seems like foolishness to the world, but it is the epitome of wisdom. Christ is the logos, the eternal word of God, and in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Colossians 2, 3. And so we who are in Christ behold the face of God in Christ. This is wisdom. Christ became our righteousness. We exchange our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. Christ took our sin and we took his righteousness. This is the divine transaction of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became our sanctification. Christ is our holiness. Paul describes this state of the believer in 1 Corinthians 6.11. Contrary to those who are walking in righteousness, he says, you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So to be sanctified in this sense is to be set apart, to be set apart for God in Christ and by Christ's blood. Christ became a redemption. Redemption is, is a term from the slave markets. To be redeemed is to be, to be bought back. 
Christ has bought us back from our slavery to sin, and he has bought us back from judgment. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.7 We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 3.24 and 25 So to quote Charles Hodge, those then who are in Christ have divine wisdom or the saving knowledge of God and of divine things. They have a righteousness which secures your, their salvation. Do you in Christ have righteousness that secures your salvation? If that is true for you, what do you have to boast of? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. You can't boast in your wisdom or your works or your anything. You have nothing of any value that God did not give you. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Now, we are not to compare ourselves with each other. We're not to do that. But, but please humor me for just a moment. How do you compare with the eloquence of C.H. Spurgeon or with the intellect of Al Mohler? Now let's raise the stakes. How do you compare to the Apostle Paul? The man who wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul said that he only boasted in two things. Paul only boasted in two things. He boasted in Christ and he boasted in his weakness. Look at verse 31. He says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he's, there, he's quoting Jeremiah 9, 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Are you boasting in Christ alone? Am I boasting in Christ alone? Even as I stand here, I am convicted of the, of the times that I have boasted in things besides Christ. We all do it. We all do it. And Paul says that if he must boast, he will boast of the things that show his weakness. 2 Corinthians 11.30 Just turn with me please there to 2 Corinthians chapter 11.
Verse 16. It says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful, boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast, for you'll gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. He's being sarcastic. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we're too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking as a madman with far greater labors, far greater imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own countrymen. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul was boasting of these things. He was boasting of his hardships because his hardships revealed his weakness. And in the revelation of his weakness, Christ was revealed. Christ was revealed. Paul was thankful for his own weakness because it pointed to God's power. It says it again in, in chapter 12, verse 5. On my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Paul was thankful for his foolishness because it pointed to God's wisdom. We'll see that again in, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Are you boasting in Christ alone? Are you boasting in your weakness? The world has it completely upside down. Completely upside down. When somebody looking from the outside sees the trials that, that are faced by a Christian, they see weakness and they see foolishness. They think that this person has given up the pleasures of sin to, to serve this supposed God who is making their life difficult. But Paul boasts in the very things that reveal his weakness. Again and again and again in Scripture, we see that the trials that we face 
are meant to bring us to an end of ourselves. So that we are pointed to Christ. So we find strength in Christ to do what we could never do. Jane and I were talking the other day about, about how we could glorify God in the situation that we're facing. And I said, by doing what we could never do. By doing what we could never do. We are foolish. We are powerless. But God is wise and God is mighty. So he is using these things that the world esteems as weak and foolish in order to, to, to glorify his name by changing us to, as we rely on the strength of Christ so that his name is glorified. And one of the, the, the clearest ways for that to happen is when you, in, in weakness and foolishness, share the gospel with somebody. We're so wrapped up in ourselves and, and our way of, of doing things and our schedules and our deadlines that even yesterday I was in a rush and didn't want to, to share the gospel with somebody because I had to, to get back to, to preparation for this message. Now that's foolishness. But God's grace prevailed. God's grace prevailed and we were able to proclaim the gospel. Because God did in us what we could never do on our own. And sometimes the gospel is going to work with power to bring life where once there was death. So in the eyes of the world, you might look foolish. Speaking with a neighbor or a coworker or on a street corner, you may look foolish, but you are unleashing the power of God. So by God's grace, let us go into the world proclaiming the wisdom and the power of God in the gospel so that he will get the glory that is due his name. May God make us a people like that so that he will be magnified. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you. 